to the A News Podcast. This is episode 219 of the A News Podcast, a digest and or conversations on anarchist activity, ideas, and conversations from the previous week on anarchistnews.org. This week on something new from the library is Life, the Enemy Itself by Cool Squid from Black Seed number six. The Enemy of Life Itself, an exploration of sex negative sentiment by Cool Squid from Black Seed number six. Sex isn't revolutionary. Okay. Try to think of the most normal thing imaginable, not in your own existence, but as a societal whole. The most socially acceptable, commonly held thought, concept, or idea. Do you imagine the grocery store? Middle class 40-somethings holding a steady job? Maybe broaden your perspective beyond human society. The most common, normal thing for anything on the planet. Sunlight? Air? No, plenty of things live without that. Movement? Sort of. I mean, if you qualify it by counting internal movements, sure. Anything slash everything has guaranteed at least one thing, and possibly only this one thing, in common. Life itself. Every organism manages to be alive, continue existence, and ensure things beyond it will exist. It maintains, it devours, it expels, it goes on. At this point in life's development, reproduction is the number one thing required for it to continue replicating itself into infinity. So, sex, arguably the most disgustingly normal thing on the planet. It's baffling that this process of life and its replication constantly surrounds us, with no escape in sight. We must eat, we must shit, we must breathe, we must be born, etc. Life is far more oppressive in its demands than any other civilized structure, but for some reason most of us are content with its control over us. Celebrate it, even. It seems that the only way to escape its unending crushing demands is to figure out how to live forever. To die would be to give in to the cycle of life, not a defiance of it. A brief explanation of what sex means in terms of this article, an act of penetrative reproduction, or an act simulating such. Let's say anything involving genitalia, penetration, and orgasm. I'm talking primarily straight sex, but honestly, feel free to imagine the best sex you've ever had, and maybe it'll still fit into this critique. In addition, I can only critique reproduction from a human lens. While the ongoing existence and reproduction of all life is incomprehensible and repulsive, I can't claim to understand how or why oak trees, sea anemones, chanterelle mushrooms, red ants, jellyfish et al. reach understanding of this concept as much as I would like to because, frankly, jizzing wildly into the sea or dispersing my clones through fruiting spore bodies sounds way more appealing. For all the shame and stigma that supposedly surrounds sex, people sure do manage to keep having babies, and continue to do so even under the most repressive of conditions. Current society engineers every way possible for two people to breed, with social structures built around making that possible, and then chained to that structure. Latex and pharmaceutical industries allow for plenty of ways to prevent life from being born, perhaps to keep us well-practiced? Anarchists and queers everywhere seem joyous at our new, oh-so-progressive sex-positive culture. By acknowledging and pursuing our physical desires, we're embracing our true, primal, animalistic selves, fucking and frolicking as we please, as if performing such a mundane, everyday occurrence can somehow be a revolutionary act, or anything more than a byproduct of biological impulses at best, and a set of social roles slash obligations at worst. Everything, everywhere is desperately trying to get laid, so why would doing it be considered radical? Sex is mandatory for the ongoing existence of civilization, having babies is a requirement for society to continue. Denying sex becomes the marginal act, though if reproduction is how we've determined whether or not something is alive, I wonder, does civilization as a concept count as a living being as it replicates itself across the planet? Has civilization fucked us? Sex is identity, identity as coercion. Sexual reproduction, by basic physical requirements, requires a catastrophically enormous imbalance of power. 
One individual in a pairing is inevitably saddled with the immense resource deprivation required for giving birth, while the other must give up nothing of itself, is allowed to remain weak, lazy, and is left with nothing other than a false sense of superiority. These power dynamics are born out of biology, if biology means nothing more than a relationship with one's physical state, not practice of science or a generalization. It's a wholly individual experience, and yet also entirely the opposite. It's environmental, as our boundaryless bodies alter in response to everything surrounding us. Those with functioning wombs live in a different biological reality where the threat of pregnancy and all the horrors that come with it looms over not just sexual interactions, but how we consider and move through the world. If one doesn't value life for the continuation of it, the ability to give birth can be nothing but punishment. Motherhood be damned. Society took hold of this already inconvenient bodily function, adding more and more conditions, obligations, expectations, and disadvantages to those cursed with birth bowels. From the regrettable moment that a child enters into the world, physical traits determine the course of someone's lived experience. Gender and social roles were born to fit into this already existing biological box. To quote James Carse's Finite and Infinite Games, emphasis mine, it is somewhat misleading to describe society as a regulator of finite sexual play. It is more the case that finite sexuality shapes society than is shaped by it. Only to a limited extent do we take on the sexual roles assigned us by society. Much more frequently, we enter into societal arrangements by way of sexual roles. While society does serve a regulatory function, it is probably more correctly understood as sexuality making use of society to regulate itself. Identity within society is formed by the sex you have, sex begat gender. The penetratee risks violation, death by childbirth, having resources exploited by force or otherwise. The womb is a resource to be colonized by life. Babies are born, the circle repeats, life hijacks society to replicate itself. People who gave birth became women. Those who impregnated became men. For some reason, people fight to maintain these basic roles over themselves. Radical feminists and MRAs both see benefits and argue for the importance slash validity of their biology. Others find new and creative ways of applying womanhood and masculinity that are inclusive of of all sorts of different biological realities. Both seem like disturbing, undesirable outcomes, and rather than replicating these biological power dynamics, it seems preferable to abolish them from our bodies completely. There's nothing deeper to be found at the core of sexual roles than a social function based on physical reproduction capability, and rarely, if ever, do acts of penetration do more than replicate the existing power differential, whether vaginal birth canal or sperm-producing penis involved or not. Defy the tyranny of physical existence, defy the urge of biology. There's an infinite body waiting to be touched with modes of pleasure that negate socially prescripted roles upon our bodies. Birth control, from the pill to condoms, remove the greatest fear of sex, i.e. reproduction slash disease. Thus, the role of subjugation and power exchange continue to emanate outwards from the physical form without personal penalization. Frankly, the clitoris must be some kind of trick engineered towards the downfall of all uterine kind. Orgasms and pleasure sneakily lure people into reckless acts, reproducing unfavorable power exchanges or accidental conception. While orgasms themselves certainly aren't invaluable, the fact that many, queers included, stick to societally prescribed positions and replicated reproductive functions such as penetration in any orifice in order to achieve release is nothing short of soul-crushingly disappointing. Even if children are not a goal or possibility of intercourse, production, if not reproduction, is almost always the focus of sex in the form of orgasm. Humans replicate an industrialized version of pleasure with a set goal-slash-product at the end result, and value placed on the quantity of orgasms is produced. Rather than bring the factory home to our lovers, we could do away with systematized gratification entirely. Any animal occasionally forced to carry young should do everything it can to avoid sex. Ducks grew labyrinthine vaginas, water spiders developed literal shields to cover their genitals, dragonflies play dead, 
sharks, elephants, snow leopards, guppies, elephant seals, dolphins, baboons, pick an animal, flee or form gangs to prevent copulation. Those who eat their penetrators don't seem to fear it quite as much, maybe because the resource exchange is more equal. Birth-giving animals outside of humans often appear drab and unimpressive in correlation with their sperm-giving counterparts because being seen as sexually viable isn't an advantage, but rather makes their lives more difficult. Creatures with both sets of genitalia, such as snails, will literally fight with chitinous knives over who gets to leave unimpregnated. Meanwhile, humans create entire industries based on finding sex and seem to do little more with their lives than seek it out. As we've seen, life goes on despite the resistance of those responsible for birth. Coercion is integral to sex across the animal kingdom, including humanity, where we futilely attempt to give consent using abstract symbols known as words. Rape is not a product of civilization, but a norm of the biological reality of birth. Rather, quote, rape's violence and transgression is not aberrant, but rather a defining aspect of sexuality. Normative, civil sex is only one part of a system that has rape as its basis, as a central operating principle. The imagined integrity of the perfectly consenting subject amounts to little more than a regulatory principle of rape, a purity to be defended against a threatening other, unquote, from undoing sex against sexual optimism by CE. This is the origin of the existence of women, to be penetrated slash impregnated, to have power asserted over them, and agency denied for the sake of life. The fear of rape is the fear of being treated as a woman, of being used as a utility. And attempting to heal from this process as a socialized woman becomes another trauma. It's alienating to extrapolate the experience of an unassigned role to myself. What happened didn't happen to me, it happened to all women. It didn't happen to me because of anything other than a common natural practice. The circumstances around it have nothing to do with me as an individual. Authors Angela Carter and Octavia Butler both tackled this subject remarkably. They both understand rape as a function of their everyday selves, not some horrific evil or virtue signal to villainy. Society's constraints on the one who is raped are the true torture. Civilization blocks us from the physical and psychological acts that would relieve this trauma. Slitting the throats of those who hurt us over a clear pool so they can watch themselves die, for example, or releasing the energy in some trembling, overwhelming shake as do gazelles who have just escaped death. We can't fight back or even run away in any meaningful capacity within existing social structures that keep us trapped inside roles where this is encouraged practice. Sex is the core way in which we enter society. Gender has been built out of the tyranny of biology. The way out is to deny both by negating the acts defining sex, most especially the sex acts leading to or alluding to reproduction. Sex is self-destruction. This piece began with discussing how reproduction is absolutely critical for maintaining social order. But any piece of philosophy or ideology wouldn't be complete without embracing its glaring and disturbing contradictions. One would think that by advocating for the end of sex and therefore reproduction, I'm merely reflecting ideas behind antinatalism, that we should stop breeding in order to let hum the human race die out, since it would be far better for whom or what exactly if humanity became extinct. And yet, it seems obvious that the more people we create on the planet, the more resources we extract slash consume for population growth, the less likely are our chances of survival. Perhaps reproducing until life is no longer possible is the best way to bring about our own extinction. Many environmentalists, and I suspect green anarchists, hold James Lovelock's Gaia theory as a given truth. Living organisms form a self-regulating and synergistic system that maintains and perpetuates the conditions for life. Gaia, the nurturing, all-caring Earth goddess, bestows her benevolence upon all living beings, and we exist within her grace. And yet, all but one of the past mass extinction events have been caused by some microbial creature or another reproducing to such a dangerous degree that it wiped itself out, as well as most of its fellow living beings off the face of the planet forever. At least if you believe the story science has to tell, which I, like everyone else, only choose to do when it serves my purpose. 
Enter Medea, murderer of her own children and her hypothesis. That life on the planet ultimately leads to the end of conditions favorable to life's existence. Life destroys life. Organic life has repeatedly caused the collapse of the biosphere on a regular basis on a small scale, and on at least one occasion has almost extinguished it entirely. When cyanobacteria first figured out photosynthesis, the sudden influx of oxygen, still considered a poisonous gas by the way, eradicated enough of the existing life at the time that we still find it notable. Twice, photosynthetic creatures consumed so much carbon dioxide that they induced a snowball earth that made the planet nearly uninhabitable by anything. Nice try, y'all. Or maybe third time's the charm. So is this perhaps why we find sex, undoubtedly a repulsive, dangerous practice, so desirable? Because we are driven to bring an end to ourselves and everything else? Is the real urge of reproduction the will to die? We are slaves to life, helpless towards the drive towards destruction. We can't help being alive, unable to break our link to life, completely obsessed by it, with no way to oppose it. Humans, I wish you luck in being the first multicellular organisms to abolish all life on Earth. Fuck to negate all life on the planet. Also props to everybody out there reproducing asexually, holding it down for the rest of us. If we insist on pursuing sex, let it be for the revolutionary purpose of destroying life itself. Girl, you make me wanna get you pregnant. Girl, you make me wanna get you pregnant. Lay your body down and get you pregnant. You are pregnant. Now usually I lead a club with a girl who has a man. Topic of the week. Art and Anarchy Every reasonably aware person of our time is aware of the obvious fact that art can no longer be justified as a superior activity, or even as a compensatory activity to which one might honorably devote oneself. The reason for this deterioration is clearly the emergence of productive forces that necessitate other production relations and a new practice of life. In the civil war phase we are engaged in, and in close connection with the orientation we are discovering for certain superior activities to come, we believe that all known means of expression are going to converge in a general movement of propaganda that must encompass all the perpetually interacting aspects of social reality. This is a quote from A User's Guide to the Tournament. In the stories handed down to me, art, or more broadly culture, served a number of purposes within anarchy and politics more generally. Whether it was an excuse for people to gather for shows, speak truth to power, or as in the situationist example of the tournament, break the spell of capital, art served not only as a vessel for beauty, but also as a means for cohesion and action. This function carried on through down the line, showing up in forms like punk as subcultural glue, a way for people to bind together and act through aesthetics. And then as it sold, something happened. I'm not sure if that something was the internet, or some other as of general named Leviathanic Force, which seemed to tear subculture asunder. But we are certainly living in the crater of that force. Yet as always, people continue to make pretty things for one another, which leaves me wondering how anarchists conceptualize this production, this expression, not only now, but through time. How has art touched or shaped your anarchist journey? How do you see that experience, that art, looking at it from your current 2021 analysis? What does art mean for you now? What does art mean for anarchy, if anything? Are there any anarchist projects that are doing interesting things with aesthetics at the moment? Greetings, everyone. This is Octox, and I'm here with Babylon, and today we're going to talk about art and anarchy. 
First, Babylon wanted to go over the definition of art so we can get that out of the way. And uh, we'll see you next uh, semester. <laughs> Tell me, what would you say is the best way to define art? All right. So to me, art is when form matters more than function. So if I were to build a bowl and the bowl was just a simple bowl to eat out of, then it's not really art. But when it becomes more about it being pretty, more about it being a delight to the senses, then it becomes art. And especially when that supersedes the function. So for instance, if I made the bowl out of something that would not heat up in the microwave because it's a pretty thing, then it becomes much more art because it is now less functional so that it can be more pretty. So art is all about delighting the senses and putting form over function, at least to me. If we would get right away trying to question that definition, not for the sake of questioning it, but to like mention what some other people we might disagree with say, what if someone says that the function of art is to please or to cause, um, you know, some type of aesthetic pleasure, obviously. Some sort of emotional response, absolutely. Yeah, the, the real function is, isn't what appears to be the function. The function is to provoke an emotional or a mental response rather than, you know, the, the simple utilitarian function of whatever the art is. Yeah, and that reminds me of, there was this architect that wrote an essay that they sometimes mention in discussions of art that was called Ornament and Crime. Have you heard of it? I have not. So, long story short, basically, he's a really cranky dude that's not any good and says basically that ornament is for, like, backward-thinking people. And he says people with enough spiritual strength, they don't need orna ornaments. But he was, like, a white supremacist, and he said that ornament was things that primitive people did and that ornament was the equivalent of graffiti on a bathroom stall. Yeah, I, I think that's actually a pretty good metaphor. Or, I mean, graffiti on a bathroom stall is ornament. Graffiti on a bathroom stall is absolutely art. There is no purpose there except to provoke a reaction. Um, but you can see that, you know, there's this fellow that's a white supremacist who is saying, oh, we need to take all the art out. This is for the primitive people. But I know that a lot of our listeners, all the folks I talk to in the chat, are all generally in favor of primitive people and opposed to civ. I, I think that civilization also certainly includes art. It becomes kind of a, a crucial part of it, but it's also simply part of being human. It's one of those things that has been floating around like Facebook and the internet and whatnot, where they say, we need to stop with the idea that to do art, we must be good at it. We need to think of it as simply something that humans do, the way that ants build anthills and build bees build beehives and birds sing. Humans make art. You know, it's, it's simply a thing that we do that, you know, perhaps may be tied to mating or maybe tied to all sorts of other evolutionary drives in us. But if we try to deny it and try to say, oh, I must be a proper talented artist, then all we are doing is depriving ourselves of a really, really natural, innate drive in ourselves. And seeing it as primitive helps with that because everything else that we are is built on the primitive human. Whether or not we are in favor of civilization, nobody can deny that primitive, innate internal human drive to create and to express ourselves. Speaking of primitive, uh, if you may call it that, uh, forms of art, for example, thinking about how primitive can you get, you know, there's performance artists which use their own body to make poetic gestures or dance. And, you know, they don't require any you know, external craft other than how someone in the comments of this uh, uh, topic of the week mentioned that uh, they would distinguish or make a distinction between art and craft, which, okay, I don't know why you stress that point too much. I, I guess not everything that's craft is art, not everything that's art is craft. And also you could say the same with ornament, 
Um, well, I mean, art versus craft is that same form versus function. To me, craft is about function, and you can you can try to make it appealing. You can try to make it pretty, but like going back to that bowl that I mentioned, you know, if you make the bowl pretty, but it doesn't heat up in the microwave, it's not a craft anymore. You know, you are you are no longer focusing on what the bowl is for as a bowl. You are now focusing on it as art, and you are putting aside its bowlness. It's not as good for eating breakfast out of anymore, but it's prettier, or it can be perhaps it makes a nice sound when you ding it with your fork or whatever, and you have sacrificed some of these other functions for it. Whereas craft has a nice, easily defined function. You can say, okay, I'm making bowls or I'm making roofing tiles or I'm making whatever. And you may make them with ornamentation. You know, you may try to make them a little prettier, but you, if you start to detract from its function, then you are losing your craftiness. You are losing your purpose and being distracted by the art. Yes. And speaking of the heights of craft and technology, I mean, we've come a long way from just, uh, you know, using mud and uh, different types of inks or colorants that you can find in plants to paint the faces and sing. And now I'm going to talk to you about a, a recent thing I, I saw. Uh, do you know uh, a a NFTs that they've been talking about recently? Oh, yeah. So recently they bought a Banksy print and they burnt it, but they scanned it and they turned it into an NFT. <laughs> and then they sold it for a ridiculous amount of money. And then another fun fact is that to make an NFT purchase or to sell it, you spend the same amount of energy that a recording studio would spend for an entire year. <laughs> Yeah. So I was involved with Bitcoin really early on. And so I've followed the whole thing with the cryptocurrencies and the blockchains. And you don't have to spend that much energy. You have to spend that much energy if you want to use the big ones. And most of the NFTs are running on a network called Ether. And Ether is huge. And because the investors have gotten into it, that is why it costs so much. Um, it is entirely possible to have a blockchain that exists on only one computer. And it will then only take as much power as it takes to run that computer for you know, a couple of hours to actually make the transactions. It would be kind of useless because you would have to access that one computer to be able to tell who owned what. But we have built up these silly ideas about the blockchains because the investors have gotten into them and the money has gotten into them. And to protect the money, we need this giant security machine that burns insane amounts of energy. And it means that the blockchains aren't as good for what they were designed for. And the first one was you know, Bitcoin. It was meant just to be money. Um, but then Ether is kind of meant to be this giant virtual computer. And so it includes all of these bits like making and trading art and keeping track of these various things and making contracts that enforce themselves and all of these other things. And it is worse at all of these things because people want to make money out of it. And so they get into it and they drive the price of Ether up. And as that happens, more and more people get involved in making the blockchain go. And it becomes more and more expensive to make the blockchain go. And, and I know there's something in there about the intersection between art and money and how that, that screws it up. If you talk to any artist who, you know, is like considers themselves an artist and that's a big, huge part of their identity, they are going to have problems with the intersection between art and money, especially if they're a professional artist, which means they're making their living off of it. And so they are dependent on that intersection between art and money, but they're absolutely going to hate it and have all kinds of horrible things to say about how those two things come together. Yes. And I think this is a good segue to begin to, you know, link, uh, the categories or the topics of art and anarchy but first i will try to i don't know make a big conceptual deal 
out of these uh, NFT things. Because if you think about it, you know, how we were defining art, how it's, you could say, a gesture imbued with meaning, uh, not so much, uh, you know, a utilitarian thing, or maybe with emotion or with energy. So the the NFT has, uh, you know, in these auctions, incredible value. And these people put disproportionate, one could say, amounts of value Mm-hmm. into what are basically images that are stored in, in digital media, but, you know, encrypted and all that. Anyways, the complex aspect is how it ties more widely to culture. Here's where it gets really muddy and complex because you can't design a culture from scratch, although people have tried. Yeah, that makes sense. There's there's definitely that imbuing of it with with energy and it's it's a fuck of a lot of energy enough to run a recording studio for a year like you said and it's putting that in this like we think of energy like oh emotional energy but no this is like actual physical made by our power plant energy that has powered up this art yes yeah, so okay so culture okay we, we kind of like pointed to uh, the aspect of gestures that artists can make uh, statements and that it's in in the perception of, of the person that is making that statement as well as the people who perceive it there's the creative aspect but what i'm struggling to express with the material is that there's an aspect of memory you could say as well in the nft it's literally something that's encrypted in a digital memory but art usually survives beyond the creator or or even becomes more famous posthumous Posthumously, uh, after they die. <laughs> yeah, I mispronounced that. All right. So let's see. We had art and NFTs and culture. And I think you were saying some really valuable things about culture. Like art becomes yeah, a, a part of culture and culture is, is also a part of art. And Yeah, and a, par- a part of us. And, uh, you know, it's like a whole... Uh, complex uh, feedback loop because we we make art influenced by culture and influence culture in the process well, that, that intersects well with art and anarchy because there is you know the, the culture around anarchy and there's the way that 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 culture is shaped by art and the way that art shapes that culture and i think that if we're going to look at anarchist artists that have really been really influential i think it's probably mostly musicians i mean there have like i can't think of any anarchist visual artists and i'm sure there are plenty and i'm sure that many of them are very talented but they haven't made me think of anarchism whereas i can think of all kinds of anarchist musicians there's all these punk rock musicians and there's some industrial musicians and electronic musicians and all sorts of musicians and so it seems like we are at least at the moment, in a kind of a space of bards shaping our culture, our vision of what anarchism is. And we have all of these angry punks shouting about it, you know, and then we've got people that definitely aren't anarchists, like the Sex Pistols, who have still managed to shape anarchist culture by singing about it and acting like idiots and shaping everybody else's image of us at the same time. Yes, a good thing to mention, because if we think about it, it wasn't until very recently that music was given format that lasted more than the ephemeral sound waves through the air mm-hmm. because in, initially music you just song and i mean if you you had to have an oral tradition you know a living culture to keep the songs and the you know the music traditions alive but then there was written music and then there's the record and there's all kind of digital and electronic music what i was thinking about memory and uh, tied in with the culture aspect and how you say that we're building the culture and influence and all that in civilization you have all these record keeping modes of going about and 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 art becomes you know there's museums there's 
catalogs, there's galleries, but there's also this whole realm of art that is ephemeral and and that lives in the memory of the people who, who enjoyed it. And you know, some would say like the it shouldn't be a because there's a lot of moralizing that that's around art, like as with anything. But some people say, yeah, it shouldn't be a separate sphere from daily life and uh, every moment his poetry but you know we could mock that as well i think it deserves to be mocked because if we're looking at art where it is about form it's not about function if you live that way you are going to live very inefficiently you know you are going to put a lot of work into everything that you do um, because art's a lot of work and that means you're not going to get very much done and so i think it's it's better for most of life to be craft and then you know some of life to be art and that makes the art more special and that doesn't mean the art has to you know be pottery that stays around forever it can be a dance or a song or whatever but it's still you know like your communication every day with your family should not be poetry and song it should be communication and then you have moments of poetry and song to experience that that beauty and that difference and and putting that much work and intention into it that makes a lot of sense but what what i was trying to get at with this uh, line of thought and, and sorry if i'm like too slow That's to okay. get at things i'm meandering but okay so some people want to have a big cultural impact through their actions and they see art more in terms of that of the impact and lasting impact than the you could say other considerations and well yeah that they will prioritize um if it's shared you know if it goes viral let's say or if it's kept for a really long time versus someone who does not have that concern of bringing about cultural change that would not be a criteria which would influence their art creation so what would you say is your personal take on art regarding uh, its impact? I think that's something that anarchists get uh, wrapped around a lot is the idea of cultural change, the idea of, you know, the, the mass movement, the, re the revolution that we kind of got from the communists and the socialists. And I think that is something that we have been moving away from to a degree. I think there's a lot more anarchists that are realizing that they don't have to change the world to change themselves. And they also don't have to change the world to change their village. And it can absolutely be very important to have that cultural impact, but it doesn't have to be a global cultural impact. It doesn't have to be a national cultural impact. It can just be a cultural impact on your family or on your friends or on, you know, your, your village, your relatively small community. And that can mean a whole lot more because if you have art that you have made, if you have a song or you have a, a picture or you have a story or whatever that has an impact on your village, all of those people know you and they can come to you and they can tell you about what your art has said to them. And you can tell them about what your intentions were in making that art. And as your audience gets bigger and bigger, that becomes less and less possible. And so as the cultural impact becomes greater and wider, it also becomes more diffuse and it becomes more impossible for the artist to maintain any kind of control over it. And it becomes more impossible for the viewer and the audience to understand what it was that the artist was doing with that art. Yeah, I, uh, I agree with that. That makes a lot of sense. So to complicate things a bit further, we so far have spoken a lot about intention, uh, impact and other aspects. But sadly, nowadays, there's, you know, like we were mentioning with the NFT, there's the matter of medium because, you know, there's a the content and there's the, the medium. And obviously there's genre, which is it has to do with the form. And within any genre, there's, you know, garbage and there's nice stuff and there's the whole variety. But uh, the topic 
mentioned something about uh, the internet and how increasingly, you know, the internet swallowing everything up. It's like the main medium for everything. So there's memes, there's music shared online, there's virtual reality, there's 3D landscapes, all of that. And we know the environmental impacts of this uh, mass culture of just being hooked on these electronics all day and all that. You know, is there uh, an implicit or explicit conflict anarchy if you decide to to use or rely on these mediums for your artistic expression or if, or is that question completely uh pointless i think it is definitely important to be aware of what is happening when you use the internet or when you use you know mediums like that because things like like banksy's painting getting turned into an NF- nft and using this obscene ridiculous amount of energy to do that you know that means that there are salmon that are not able to make their babies because they couldn't get through a dam or it means that there are birds and humans and all sorts of rodents and whatnot that are not able to breathe because of the the coal fumes that are coming out of the power plants and so it's important to be aware of these impacts and it doesn't mean that is not ever worth doing these things you know we can we can make destruction we can shake things up but it's important with art it is very important to be intentional about these things and so the medium becomes very important as far as the internet in general it's also this structure that has been built by governments that is maintained by governments and that is heavily monitored by governments and so when anarchists use the internet to communicate when we use it to share art we have to be aware that we are in a space that has been created and is being shaped and is being watched by the enemy And we have to kind of include that into our art and realize that we are not in our own space. We are not in our home. We are not in our garden. We are not in our village square. We are in the government's carefully built um, garden. And they are absolutely paying attention. And it's big and it's messy and the government is completely incompetent. And so, no, it's not like they're going to be able to turn all of it into bad things. But we do need to be aware that we are using their structure when we do these things. And it, yeah, it absolutely doesn't mean we shouldn't, but it's definitely something to be aware of, especially when we're using it to share art because that becomes part of the art. Yes. Uh, to end, uh, to round uh, off this topic, uh, a quick provocation because uh, earlier we were shouting on the IRC and you said some interesting things about um destruction of art that you said that destruction of art is an artistic action but is a less valid action than most and i thought that was provocative could you (laughs) expound on that yeah absolutely so a lot of people will kind of shit on the idea of art and i think it's mostly just because people get very pretentious and wrapped up in it and so they'll get into the idea of smashing art you know of, of toppling statues of you know tearing up art and destroying it And that is an artistic action. It's very much form over function. It is all about, you know, look what I have done. I have done this thing. And it feels less valid to me because when you do art, you have created something that um, is beautiful or has an impact. You know, perhaps it's an ugly impact. You know, it, it could make you hurt, but it is at least doing something to your emotions. And when someone does this, they are as well. But that impact is entirely dependent on what it is they are destroying. So if you have, um, you know, like if you have a statue of some Confederate general and you knock it down, that's that's certainly a good action. I'm in favor of knocking down the, the statues of Confederate generals, but it's less artistically viable to me than putting up that statue was in the first place, because the only reason that anybody cares that you knocked that statue down is because they care about that Confederate general. They don't care about what you're doing. They care about what you are reacting against. And so you have put yourself in a space where you are dependent on your enemies to be able to make your statement and to be able to make your art that's a very profound way to look at it so uh, thank you very much for this conversation uh, everyone have a nice day
this week's podcast. This week's podcast was sound edited by Greg. Thanks to Octox and Babylon for the help with the topic of the week, art and anarchy. And the what's new in the library was read by Greg. We hope this podcast is useful to and fun for anarchists and the anarcho-curious. Give us feedback and constructive criticism by email at podcast at anarchistnews.org. For more information and usually some good commentary, see you at your favorite non-sectarian anarchist site, anarchistnews.org. To learn more, anarchist and anti-political books, pamphlets, and other material are available at littleblackcart.com. For news by and or about anarchists and up-to-the-minute commentary, see you at anarchistnews.org and or the Anarchist News IRC chatroom linked on Anews and or Pleroma, which is antisocial with the dots. Men, and how often we forgot to agree.